0: Great job, man. Thank y'all. As y'all are having a seat, if you will, grab your Bibles. Open up to the book of Ephesians. I almost couldn't say that with you because I couldn't find my Bible uh, right before we, uh, right, like, Josh, we were running around frantic. All my sermon notes are right in here, so I almost had to wing it. I was like, I've got 10 minutes to find this thing, or I'm going to get up there and just have to mumble. So, luckily, uh... I found it, so I was a little panicked, so if I seem a little jittery, I was like, that's never happened to me in all my years of ministry, 15 years, I've always had my notes with me, and so it almost happened today, where I just, I was like, I I won't know what to say, I I got nothing, so by God's grace, I can say, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians. Chapter 4. Uh, we are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians. If you are new with us, we want to say welcome. We're thrilled that you are here. Uh, kind of the meat and potatoes of what we do here at Providence North is we walk through books of the Bible, um, and we currently find ourselves walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to uh, this church. Uh, that was planted. And so he's writing a letter to encourage this church and to teach them a few things and to um, challenge them and to point them to Jesus in their walks in life. And so uh, the first part was just this perspective changing ideas about the glory of God, the goodness of God, the salvation of God. And as we've transitioned beginning last week, Uh, Paul's now getting into the practicals. It's it's where the rubber meets the road. And he's going to drill down with us, saying, in light of all these realities, the glorious realities of who we are in Christ, this is now how we as believers in Christ ought to live. And so that's where we find ourselves, Ephesians 4. We're going to be in 17 through 32. If you want to follow along, they'll be on the screen as well. Paul says this, Now I say, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to every practice, all kinds of impurity. But that's not the way you learned Christ, Assuming you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and this corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So today what we're going to be talking about, what the Apostle Paul is going to paint for us, this picture. There's some very hard things that he said in here, but he's doing this to paint a picture of what we once were to now what we are in Christ. And he's going to use this idea that the Apostle Paul uses a lot in his letter to churches, this idea of putting, putting on something and taking off something. So taking off and then putting on. He tells us in this text that this is what happens when you became a Christian, that you put on an entirely new identity, that you put on an entirely new identity, right? And he's telling this to this church, he's telling this to this church in Ephesus, and he's asking them, he's saying, remember your new identity, remember who Christ has made you, remember what he has done for you. And he's saying, in light of that, in light of the new identity that he's given to you, in light of Jesus that he's come for you, now he's going to say, now you're to live in light of that new reality. You're to live out this new identity. It's like um, in, in, in our world today, a soldier, a fireman, a policeman, or an astronaut, they've got these respected uniforms that we sort of see them in. And when you see them in that attire, when you see them in that dress, when they put on the uniform, when they put on the badge, it carries meaning and it carries weight. So when you see an officer, you have an idea of what their job is to entail, of what they are to do for you, how they are to uh, live and how they're to operate, similarly to a fireman or a soldier. There's expectations that come and responsibilities that come with this new identity that you put on, right? And so we are also clothed, Paul is going to tell us, in the garments of Christ, We have put on Christ like a garment. We have placed him on us, right? He is now with us. He is a part of us. He's pressed into us. And now there is an expectation as those clothed in the garments of Christ of how we are to operate in the world that we find ourselves in. Right? The old saying, it's the clothes that makes the man, which isn't true at all physically, but it's true here spiritually, right? It is true here spiritually. In fact, uh, it's not true physically at all. Jesus, in fact, uh, highlights this in some very aggressive way uh, to the religious leaders at the time when Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus makes this observation. He even says things like this to, to those religious leaders. He says, you're all shiny and brightly dressed, and you look perfect on the outside, but he said, you're dead on the inside. Jesus says, you've put on Christ on a soul level. And so now you're to walk in the realities that he's already produced in your heart and in your mind. right? The clothes of Christ change everything for us. When we put on Christ, we've received an entirely new identity. And Paul says, now we must live differently in light of it. It's not just a mental checklist. It's not just, okay, I did that long ago, or I believed that once long ago. But our belief and faith produces something in us that we live our lives in this new reality. So he uses this putting off and putting on. He uses it in a lot of other places, all over the New Testament. Uh, Colossians, Paul says this. You've put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, Colossians 3. Romans 13, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it again there. Galatians, he says it again. Galatians 3, he says, you were all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ. Listen to this. And have clothed yourself with Christ. You have been clothed with Christ, Paul says. So what we're talking about today, as Paul gets real practical with us, is wearing the garments of Christ, being clothed with Christ. So the first paragraph, when we, as we get into this, is sort of the doctrinal section. It's explaining our new identity. Paul gets uh, doctrinal here. The second paragraph is the very practical section. It's that almost list-like Um, section that he's going to get into where he's going to tell us what we need to put off and therefore what we need to put on. Uh, It's almost too practical, right? You're like, oh man, that's sometimes tough to live in. And so that second part is going to be 18 through 32. So this first section, we've got this idea that Paul gives us and he says this in in verses 17 through 19. He's basically going to say, don't live like the non-Christians. Don't live like that. He begins with this strong Urgent exhortation. Listen to this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, those that don't know Christ, those that are far from Christ, those who haven't heard of it. Uh, Some translations uh, use the word insist rather than testify. I insist in the Lord, you must no longer walk in this manner. Paul's kind of fired up here. In light of all this other stuff that we've talked about, you've been sealed, you've been saved, you've been redeemed, you've been purchased, uh, you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Now, you must no longer walk like this, like the world, like the rest of the world that doesn't know him. He's stressing it. He's He's saying, church, don't live as if Jesus has not changed you. He's pleading with you. Don't just wake up and do the same thing you did yesterday as if Jesus is not an active reality in your life. As if he's not bearing down on you with the weight of glory that comes with our salvation. We're to conduct our lives in a manner that honors Christ. And he uses this word, walk. He uses this a lot in the book of Ephesians. Now, it doesn't mean like you... It's not like a swagger, right? Like, oh, you kind of, Christians have a certain way we, right? It means how we live our lives. It's not like the unbelievers have this certain way of walking and Christians have another way of walking and it's kind of weird and everyone can tell, right? It's no, it's, it's a way of life. It's not your physical steps, it's your life and how you live and how God has, is orchestrating uh, the things that you're to be involved in. It's the way, it's the conduct of our lives, Is how we walk, it's our walk, um, who remembers uh, the great song by Johnny Cash, Walk the Line? There was a movie made about it just not too long ago, right? Um, so it's, it's this similar idea. Johnny Cash, that was his very first number one song. Um, he wrote it, uh, the story goes, he wrote it backstage right after being married as a pledge of devotion to his wife. And so he writes these words, these lyrics, just real simply. Since you've been mine... I walk the line. Oh, I admit I'm a fool for you. Since you've been mine, I walk the line. That's Johnny Cash's way of saying, this is my devotion to you, my wife. I'm going to walk in a way uh, that shows that I'm yours, that you're mine. I'll walk the line. Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. That's, what he's, that's how he began it last week, in the beginning of four. He's saying, since now we've been made new creations in Christ, we're to walk in a way that resembles Christ and honors this new relationship. All right? It's a life of devotion to our Savior that we want to. We've been so, our affections have been so stirred toward Him, have been so ignited for Him that we can't help but want to live and operate and move toward the places that would honor Him and serve Him and grow the kingdom and honor the church and worship Him. So in verses 17 through 19, Paul reminds the Ephesian church, and he reminds us that before we came to Christ, uh, our minds and our feelings and our actions were darkened. He paints a grim picture for us of what it was like before Jesus invaded our hearts and minds. And he says that we lived in the futility of our minds. Or this idea that he's, that he's painting, we lived in uh, meaninglessness, right? We were We were all of our actions, all of our ways were just futile. They were were meaningless. And Paul says, don't live this way. Don't live this way any longer. You've been saved for so much. Your life now has tremendous purpose given by God himself. Don't live in a meaningless way from one thing to the next as if you have nowhere to go. A lot of us, we ask that, that's the, that's the age-old question, right? It's like, well, what's the meaning of life? What, is, what, am, I supposed, what am I here for? What, what am I doing? And as you grow up, that answer changes, right? When you're nine, uh, you just want to be 10, so you get double digits. It's a big deal, Right? Uh, when you're 14 you just want to get to 16 so you can drive you just that's the goal I'll have my freedom finally I can get my driver's license maybe mom will let me borrow the car every now and again or maybe I can save up enough to get my own car or whatever it is you're just you just can't wait and then when you're sixteen then you get your license you're like then when you're 16 you're like oh, I can't wait to be eighteen uh, then I can finally go buy dip and try it with my friends and throw up in an hour I'd have no exper- I don't know what that's like but that's not a personal story and it's Cherry, never get cherry, it's bad news. And then when you're 18, you're like, oh, I just can't wait to be 21. 18's bearing me down, I can't wait to go buy a six-pack. And then it'll finally arrive. And Paul says, don't live like that, it's just futile, it's meaningless. From one thing to the next, from one thing to the next. From just, you're just kind of, it's like you're in a barrel and just kick down the hill, Right? Oh, I can't wait for the next bump, and that'll be fun. We'll see what happens, right? He says, don't live in this manner. Paul says, this is not what you were made for. So many of us are caught up in this way of living. We aim um, at silly things with our lives, with meaningless goals. And we just spend all of our days and all of our time and a lot of our resources just chasing them. Thinking, once I get that, then. We all have that. We all have this in our minds. Once I get blank, then I'll be blank. Whatever that is for you, insert whatever it is you're chasing into whatever outcome you think that, that will get you. Paul says, this is a futile way of living. It's not bad to desire things or want things or to you know, have goals in mind. But Paul's saying, it's, that's not the meaning of life as a Christian. It's not just from one thing to the next. That's futility. And he goes on to say that you were also darkened in your understanding. Right? That's pretty bleak. Meaning we had no light. It was was blacked out. Sin produces a malfunction of our mind, one commentator said. And next Paul addresses the heart. And he says that your heart was alienated from the life of God. Meaning that before Christ, we just we had no life apart from him. Yes, we had physical life, but there was no spiritual life. The sermon went out and nothing happened. The word of God was read and nothing stirred. Worship went up and nothing happened in you. The Bible was opened and nothing moved in you. And then he added that as non, a non-believer, our hearts are hard. It's like a bullet against a rock. It just, nothing could penetrate it. The gospel went out and our hearts seemed to just get harder. And he adds in verse 19, and they have become calloused. So that hardness, that resistance, that arm's length toward the things of God over and over and over again just began hardening us and it calloused us. See, the gospel is always doing something in us, church the gospel is always producing something it's not static it's not the gospel is not neutral it's producing something in us it always is it always has an effect and so here's the danger church hearing hearing and not responding And not responding, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and hearing, and not responding, and not responding, and not responding. And over time, our hearts become calloused. But Paul's gonna make the pivot, and he's gonna say, But praise be to God who has broken through our hard and calloused hearts with the gospel. All those sermons that we rejected, all the Bible lessons that we ignored, All the resistance that we put up to the good news of grace, God and his grace has broken through. And Paul reminds this church, don't return to that old way. Don't become calloused again. That's not who you are. Don't become hardened. That's not who you are. You're a different person. The grace of the gospel has invaded you and has changed you and is Wanting to produce a new life. So the result of a dark this darkened mind in verse 19 um, is not good news. If you continue down that road and continue to have a hard and calloused heart toward the things of God, the result is sensuality and every kind of impurity. And Paul uses this type of language all over the New Testament. For example, in Romans, his letter In Romans, in chapter 1, he basically says, if you have the wrong God, you'll have the wrong life. We all bow down to something, right? He says, when you're not responding to Jesus, here's what will happen. There is a total lack of moral restraint. And it often leads to sexual obsession and total perversion of the way that God has made us and wired us. We distort the good things of God for our own purposes and pleasure. And we say, we know better, and we want to chase that rather than what God has asked us to run after. And here it tells us something interesting. Um, Paul says that they gave themselves up to the passions of their flesh. In Romans, it says something different, which I find very interesting in Romans. Uh, It says that God actually gave them up to it. It says God gave them over to their passions. It's almost like saying, okay, you don't want heaven. You don't want the things of God. Go get what you're chasing. It's all yours. You can have it. And they end up getting what they want. And we get what we want in that pursuit and it's a picture of darkness that is uh, that is frightening, and he and God gave them up to sensuality and impurity. It says in Romans, but Paul Paul is painting a picture for this church in Ephesus. He's painting this picture of darkness. Is he's reminding them? He's saying, he's like, church, this isn't you anymore. You don't have to live this way. You're not slave to it. These don't own you. If you've, if, if you've learned Christ, will get to you, this is not how we're to live. Don't walk this way. We're to think differently. We're to respond to truth differently. We're to act differently. And then God enables us to live that way by the Holy Spirit. So the second thing Paul tells us is that we should live as a new creation in Christ. Verses 20 through 24. <clears throat> and he kind of uses this in three uh, different ways. He, he uses a picture of a school. He uses a picture of clothing that's sort of old and new, put on and put off. And he uses creation to show us this. So first, he kind of gives us this idea of a school. And he says this, but you, Christian, you, church, that, all that stuff, all that darkness, all those passions of the flesh, he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. It says, remember your Christ-centered, God-centered education, if you will. It's not a formal education, but it's transformation. Remember, you were transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is not how you learned Christ. John Stott describes it wonderfully like this. He says, Christ is the subject of the teaching. He's the teacher himself, and Christ is the context of this teaching. I like that. It says, this is not the way you learned Christ, verse 20. This is a very unusual statement in the New Testament. Um, It's this awe-inspiring idea that we learned Christ. It doesn't say we learned about Christ. It says we learned Christ. This is not how you learned Christ. Christianity, this is important. Christianity is about knowing a living person. It's, he's, he's knowable. The phrase to learn a person, catch this, appears nowhere else in the Bible and to date has not been traced anywhere else in pre-biblical Greek texts. One commentator notices in his study. To learn Christ, to learn a person is found nowhere else in the Bible and it's found nowhere else in any Greek texts that were written at the same time. This is essentially Paul made up a new idea. Paul made up a new phrase. No one had ever written this down. No one had ever articulated a thought this way. You always learned about something. That's the way we all tend to learn. We learn about something and then we take the things we've learned about and we try to integrate them into our lives. Paul says, no, you learned a person. What? How? You learned Christ himself. That's Christianity. When you became a Christian, you didn't merely learn the teachings of Jesus and then check, I did it. You learned a person. It's relational language. You developed a relationship with the living Christ. He's no longer dead. He's alive. And so my question this morning is, have you? You're sitting here this morning. Have you come to know Christ, the person? If not, you can't live this new life he's describing. It can't be done on your own work and merit. It all begins with knowing Christ, the person. The Bible calls that uh, conversion, being saved, being born again. That's That's the starting place of this all. Christianity is not about moral rule keeping. It's not about religious attendance. It's not even about believing in God or doing good things or knowing facts about Christ. It is knowing Christ and being transformed by the renewing of our mind, by his spirit pressing in on us each and every day. John 17.3 says, this is eternal life, that they know you. That They know you. And no one else can do it for you. Um, the silly... Pastor analogy, I'll just tell you. It's, it's, it's this it's little girl goes to get her flu shot, and the nurse goes, Do you want it in your right arm or your left arm? I want it in mom's arm. <laughs> Mom can't do this for you, right? I don't want to do that. Just put it in her arm. Okay? Isn't that good enough? Your spouse can't do it for you, your kids can't do it for you. Um, it's a relationship with the living God. In Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and says, so now put off this old garment and put on the new one. Verses 22 and 23. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and, and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and true holiness Here's a parallel text that really helps us understand it. Colossians 3, 8 and 10. This won't be on the screen, but this is a very similar thought that Paul gives us. He says, But now you must put them all away. Or you're wondering, okay, so what, what old garment do we put away? Paul gives us a nice picture of that here in Colossians. Put away all anger wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after its image, the Creator. So the command is to put away these sins based on the fact that our old self has already been removed and our new self has already been put on by Christ at our conversion. So John Stott summarizes it this way. It's because we've already put off our old nature in the decisive act of repentance called conversion or when we're saved, that we can logically be commanded to put away all these practices which belong to the old self, the rejected life. So Paul is not telling us here, go make yourself a Christian by doing all this stuff. Jesus, in his grace, has already done this for you, so you have now the power to put off the old self. You're no longer slaves to it, so you're able to. You put it off, and then you put on Christ as your new garment. Uh, when I was in college, uh, many guys in here will relate to me on this. Uh, if the couch was smelling a little grimy, you had too many friends over, the shoes were getting a little too sweaty, you just go buy some Febreze. Ksh, ksh, ksh. Just douse the place in Febreze and then you're good to go, right? Some of you are like, I still do that, right? Um, this is not the picture Paul is painting for us. He's not saying, okay, make sure you show up every week and get your spray of Jesus that masks all the rotten stuff in your life and just put it on the outside and then the world it will wear off and you show up again and get more of this, the next kind of jolt of Jesus. It's, it's no, that is gone. It's put off the old and put on the new. It's not a covering up. It's not a covering up. That's just religious practice. This is new life in Christ, Paul is explaining to us. You don't need to mask over something. And he goes on and he says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and true holiness. He's saying all of this happens, this change happens by the power of God. By the very power of God. You can't just pick yourself up by the bootstraps. It's God has given you the ability because of His Spirit and His life on you that now you can cast off the old. Um, any, any of you, Anyone in here familiar with Bob Newhart? He was like a comedian back in the 70s. Maybe, you are I think my generation's maybe more familiar with him than Elf. He was Papa Elf. Papa Elf, anyone? There's a, sorry, I'm getting somewhere with this. There's this really funny skit back in the 70s, and Bob Newhart plays this uh, counselor, and a lady walks in, he's kind of in his counseling office, and she walks in, and uh, she says, <laughs> and he sits down and he says, uh, first he kind of lays out the stipulations, he goes, okay, um, Here's the way I work. I charge $5. Um, My sessions last five minutes, and I don't make change. She's like, oh, wow, okay. geez, that's quick. So they sit down, and she's like, well, should I lay down here on the couch? He's like, no, we don't do that anymore. Just sit down right here. He goes, this won't won't take too long. She sits down. He's right in front of her, and uh, he says, go. He's kind of startled. He's like, oh, what, what, what do you mean? Go ahead. What's What's wrong? She says, well, I have this grave fear of being buried alive in a box. He says, okay. Uh, Has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? No. Um, Is someone actively trying to bury you alive in a box? She says, "Uh, no. Um, Has you ever experienced uh, at any time being buried alive in a box? No. He goes, okay. I need you to listen very carefully. I'm going to tell you two words. And then you need to listen to these two words and you need to do them and practice them in your everyday life. And he's like, and she goes, oh, okay. Um, Well, should I write these down? And he says, "Uh, there's just two words. I mean, you can write them down if you want, but most people can remember. It's this great skit. He looks at her and he goes, stop it. (laughs) she, She just jumps. What? Stop it. Two words, stop it. And she's like startled. She's like, I don't understand. He's like, why does everyone say that? Just stop it. And he goes on and on and on and on. This is not what Paul is commending. A lot of us are just like, well, why can't I just stop it? It's by Christ and his grace, he gives us, we're not able to just stop it and be what we want to be on our own power. It's not just, it's not that way. Right? We need a new mind and we need a new heart. And He gives us the power by His grace to change. It's not just stop it. Right? So there's some of these things that we're to put off and we're to replace them with something else. And this next paragraph shows us how we have the power of the Spirit to now live. And so verses 25 through 32. He gets real practical with us. And I'm just going to crank through these real practical steps. We could spend probably five more weeks going through these, but I'm going to race through them. He says the first things that that having this new life gives you. The first thing that Jesus, when he invades your hearts and as he invades your life, some of the fruit that will happen, some of the things that will happen to you are these. He says replace lying with truth-telling. That's simple. Stop lying. Stop lying to each other. Stop lying to your spouse. Stop lying at work. Be a person of truth. Why? He gives us the why. Because we're members of one another. It means that we depend on one another. It means that we are more interconnected than we could ever imagine. We love each other so we don't harm each other by lying to each other. It dishonors God. Since we're united together, false words hurt the body of Christ. Falsehood hurts unity. Truth strengthens unity. So real practically, stop lying. Second thing, replace unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Verses 26 and 27. Now is there such a thing as righteous anger? Uh, I think whenever I was in high school or college, I thought it was getting mad without cussing. Like that was sort of that was the extent of righteous anger. If I, can, if I can replace the bad word with a word that sounded like the bad word, but it wasn't actually the bad word, that was like righteous anger. So it was like, oh, fiddlesticks or whatever it is, right? You know, it like, sounds better. That's not exactly what Paul's talking about here. Although I think the intentions are well meaning because he goes on later, says, "Let no one help him talk." So I was trying to do that, right? But I didn't ha- handle the anger problem, so it was, it was it was out of control. But this is what Paul is getting at: we need to f- the things that we are to feel angry about as Christians are uh, injustice, sin, when evil prevails. Um, and so Paul's saying, "Don't be indifferent to sin." Don't be indifferent to the prevalence of evil. Don't be indifferent uh, where you see injustice happening and oppression happening in the world. Stand up for that. That should anger you in a soul level, in a righteous anger, because those things are not of God. They don't represent God. They don't represent his kingdom. So it should stir something in you to action. That's righteous anger. We should hate sin like God does. John Piper adds this. He says, good anger is mingled with grief. So not only are you angry, but you see it and it just grieves you. Jesus expressed this when he turned the the tables over in the temple. Wilberforce stood up, had this holy anger against slavery and did something about it. Martin Luther had a holy anger against doctrinal corruption in the church long, long ago, and he did something about it. Now, unrighteous anger is mentioned in verse 31. It's an anger that's self-defensive. It's an anger that's uh, out of control. It's an anger that uh, the Bible says will lead to murder. It leads to jealousy. It leads to envy. And it leads to a host of other things in our lives that are not productive and are not indicative of the life of Christ. And he says, don't have unrighteous anger toward your brothers and sisters in the church. Don't have unrighteous anger toward your spouse. Don't have unrighteous anger toward your children. Third thing. He says, replace stealing with working and giving. This is kind of strange. What's going on? Why did he mention this here? This is helpful. Well, some commentators believe that this Greco-Roman time, there was a lot like a lot of the workers in that church were maybe seasonal workers, and there's just this culture of just kind of taking what, what you could get, right? But Paul reminds us, he says, hey, as believers, we need to do honest work. We were created for work, Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Work is a gift from God. To not want to work is a sinful desire. He's saying don't be lazy. Don't try to get out of things. Don't try to steal to get ahead. Right, he says, be honest, have integrity, even in the work that you are doing with your every day. Jesus was a carpenter or a stonemason, right? Paul worked so he wouldn't be a burden on the church. Fourth thing he says: replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. Verse twenty-nine. The word corrupt means rotten. It means putrid. It could mean filthy. Uh, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to, to, to describe rotten fruit. Um, or rotten fish, even, in Matthew 12. So it, this, this type of fruit or this type of food that's rotten, that's putrid, that's filthy, it doesn't nourish. It makes you sick if you were to eat it. It comes from a diseased tree. It smells horribly. It's revolting. People want to go away from it, not toward it. And Paul says, your words give evidence about who you are and what you're all about. If you are a new person, your words should be fruitful. They should produce um, the life-giving goodness of Jesus to others. Jesus says something very frightening in Matthew 12:36. He says that we will give an account for every careless word spoken. So what is edifying talk? Um, Or no, what is corrupt talk? Lying, it's already mentioned, abusive language, vulgar references instead of thanksgiving and praise, being vulgar, being vicious, having unkind words, gossip, slander. These are the types of things the New Testament talks about. What is edifying talk? It's well-chosen talk, right? It's carefully, carefully chosen words that build up. It's constructive talk. It's helpful talk. It's encouraging talk. Much of leadership in the Christian life is about encouraging one another toward Christ. It's about coming alongside one another. If your disposition and you have and you go about life and you're cynical and you're critical and you're cold, there's no warmth about you. Um, you're just not going to be a great leader. People aren't going to want to sit and learn from you and hear from you in your job, in your family, or even in your church. No one wants to be around a cold, cynical, disgruntled person. He says, have edifying talk. Let your your words be meaningful to people. Build up one another, give grace to one another. Right? We're to encourage one another. We all need encouragement here. I've never met anyone too encouraged in the gospel. I don't think there's enough encouragement. We all are very quick with a critical word. It's just the natural fleshly bent. It takes intentionality to speak encouragement in the gospel to one another. It's not... It's not, stumbled, it's not something stumbled into. Fifth, Paul says, replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. He says, put on kindness and forgiveness. He kind of ends this whole section with this list, right? And uh, forgiveness is all about applying the gospel in our lives. Um. And it's not like this. This is not the type of forgiveness we're talking about, that Paul's talking about. It's not, I'm going to forgive that person so I don't become bitter like that person who didn't forgive. That's selfish, right? It's not it. It, That that actually shines a light back on you. I'm going to forgive this person. I'm going to be the bigger person, right? A lot of, we, I mean, I never struggle with this. Some of us might struggle with this, right? This is not what he's talking about. That makes yourself superior. I'm going to be the bigger person and forgive that person because they won't, and they're going to be bitter, and I'm going to be the forgiver. Uh, That's not the gospel-centered forgiveness that Paul is describing here. He's saying, Christ has forgiven me in the gospel, and so now there is no one that I can't forgive. That's a different kind of forgiveness. That's about Christ, not about ourselves. And so church, this morning, what I want us to do as we close, the band's going to come back up, and uh, we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper today. In light of Christ who has given himself for us, in light of the fact that Christ's blood was shed for us, that he went to the cross for us, that he's given us grace, he's given us this new life, we are now able to clothe ourselves with Christ because of the cross. It's not our own work. It's not of our own doing. It's not us picking ourselves up by the bootstraps. It's us by the power of God through faith in Christ that we're able to live in this. And so what I want us to do is maybe spend some time before you come take the Lord's Supper and just maybe ask that the Lord would maybe reveal some of these places that you're struggling in currently. Maybe he would reveal some of these places that you just, man, maybe sin has That old way of life, the old self, it just creeps in, it's dripped in over time and pray that that you would take that off and put on the new self by God's help through Christ. And communion is all about us as a church body, believers in Christ coming forward and remembering Jesus, remembering what he's done for us. And so as... You're praying about these places you want to put off and put on the new. You do so by the power of Christ and us coming forward and, and taking up the bread and drinking the cup of the new covenant reminds us that it's by the spirit of God, by the work of Christ that we're able to do that. So I'm gonna pray. And as you feel ready, uh, we're gonna have folks here in the front uh, serving communion and you come forward when you're ready. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you that you that you do change us. That because of the gospel, um, we're not just stuck in how we once were, but you, by your spirit, actively press us into this new life, a life that is full, a life that is um, able to put off the old ways that we get so easily entangled in and, and by your blood, Lord, because of the cross, because of all that you've done for us, we're now able to clothe ourselves with Christ in righteousness and in holiness and in forgiveness. And so we're able to walk in that new life because of all that you've done for us. And so Lord, I just pray that in these areas that we struggle, in the areas that I struggle, God, you would, by your spirit, help us to actively put them off, not just cover them up, but you'd help us to get rid of them Take them off and you'd help us by your spirit be clothed in the clothes of Christ in humility and in grace and forgiveness and in encouragement and in a holy anger against the things of injustice and against the things that you're against, Lord. Would you help us grow us into a people that would reflect you? And so this morning, we wanna remember you and all that you've done. We love you, we praise you. Jesus name and you spend some time praying and come forward as you're ready